August 28, 1928, in the Scottish Highlands began the secret story of oil. Three men had an appointment at Ochnockery Castle, a Dutchman, an American, and an Englishman. The Dutchman was Henry Detterding, a man nicknamed the Napoleon of Oil, having exploited a find in Sumatra. He joined forces with a rich ship owner and painted shell salesman, and together the two men founded a Royal Dutch Shell. The American was Walter C. Teagle, and he represents the Standard Oil Company founded by John D. Rockefeller at age 31, the future Exxon. Oil wells, transport, refining, and distribution of oil. Everything is controlled by Standard Oil. The Englishman, Sir John Cadman, was the director of the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, soon to become BP. On the initiative of a young Winston Churchill, the British government had taken a stake in BP and the Royal Navy switched its fuel from coal to oil. With fuel-hungry ships, planes, and tanks, oil soon became the blood of every battle. The new automobile industry was developing fast, and the Ford Model T was selling by the million. The world was thirsty for oil, and companies were waging a merciless contest, but the competition was making the market unstable. That night, in August, the three men decided to stop fighting and to start sharing out the world's oil. Their vision was that production zones, transport costs, sales prices... Everything would be agreed and shared, and so began a great cartel whose purpose was to dominate the world by controlling its oil. Four others soon joined them, and they became known as the Seven Sisters, the biggest oil companies in the world. Do you want me to, you want me to go on? you want me to read some more? I mean, this is gold, right? I mean, this is fantastic. Um, let's see. What I'm reading from, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, I guess this is the transcript of um, of a series that was done. Let's see. Uh, it's on the Al Jazeera website. Uh, and so I guess this is maybe a podcast or a series of or something that they, a documentary uh, that they did. And, you know, I should have looked up when this was from, but it doesn't really matter because it's historical. Um uh, here, I'll get, it's, it's, that's, I guess that, that's the introduction, what you just heard. Now, by the way, thanks uh, to the guys, uh, <laughs> to, the, to the weirdos over at Red Ice TV, because that's how I actually found this. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe they're not weirdos, but they, they have been kicked off of pretty much every mainstream platform, although that is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, in any case, uh, episode one, I'll, I'll share a little bit more. Because this is fantastic. Um, episode one. It's, this is just the, I, I guess this is just the, uh, the abstract or the, the, the synopsis. It's not an abstract. What am I saying? Uh, for episode one. In the first episode, we travel across the Middle East through both time and space. Since that notorious meeting at Aknockery Castle on August 28th, 1928, they have never ceased to plot to plan and to scheme. 
throughout the region's modern history since the discovery of oil, the Seven Sisters have sought to control the balance of power. They have supported monarchies in Iran and Saudi Arabia, opposed the creation of OPEC, profiting from the Iran-Iraq war, leading to the ultimate destruction of Saddam Hussein and Iraq. The Seven Sisters were always present and almost always came out on top. This is fantastic. I got to watch this series. I wonder if it's still available. Anyway, you can find it on Al Jazeera. Just look for, uh, here's the headline. Um, is a four-part series that reveals how a secret pact formed a cartel that controls the world's oil. Uh, or did, anyway. Um, the, the Secret of the Seven Sisters. That's the, uh, that's the headline that you're looking for. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave that there for a minute. Because... Um, uh, first of all, if, if you may have noticed when you queued up this episode to listen to it, hold on, I gotta adjust my chair. All right, oh, no, that's not. Ah, there we go. You may have noticed the title of this episode. Uh, I, I think it's it's. I'm gonna call it. I might be changing my mind now. If you're looking at the title and it doesn't say that, it's because I changed my mind about the title. But that is uh, that's where I'm coming from today and um and what i you know well okay let me back up let me let me start at the beginning uh first first i have an article i have some breaking news although it it's, it's breaking news for me today by the time you hear this you will pro you will probably you probably will have already heard this but uh but it's still fairly new news and uh, I'm on the CNN.com. Yes, yes, I, I, I try to be as open-minded as possible in my perusing of the headlines. And uh, CNN Business has this headline. BlackRock has been vocal about sustainability, period. It just appointed a Saudi oil executive to its board. Yes, we are talking about none other than the appointment of Amin Nasser. Uh, sorry, Mr. Nasser, I probably didn't say that exactly right, but uh, uh, he is the, uh, the CEO of Saudi Aramco, and uh, as probably everyone knows, and, and he is now on the board of directors of BlackRock. Yes, that company that's been hassling the big oil companies and trying to invade, not only trying, but succeeding in invading their boards of directors and trying to force them into some sort of sensible climate uh, approach to, you know, you know, the good shit that they're supposed to be doing. Um, so, th so this article has been, or this announcement rather, uh, has been met with, uh, a, as you can imagine, uh, a variety of uh, uh, cheers and jeers uh, and lots of speculation. What does this mean? And, and, and all of the, you know, because we can't just have the news. We can't just, <laughs> there's too much, there's too much news space to fill up these days. And so you can't just tell it. They can't just tell us what happened, but they have to give us all the speculations about what it means. Now, uh, I'm just going to call out a couple of things here. Um, there's just two, I, I'm not going to dwell on what this means. Um, Besides, it's probably a topic for Delphina's show, maybe, or even maybe Jordan Driscoll's show. But um, I, there's two things I want to call to your attention. And uh, the first is that Larry Fink, 
the, the CEO, which always makes me laugh. Uh, the CEO, the BlackRock's CEO, Larry Fink. Uh, he, he, here's the, here's his quote. Now this is, I mean, this is a well-crafted quote for the, for the newspapers. He said, uh, let's see, he touted Mr. Nasser's CNN doesn't put the Mr. in front, but the wall street journal still does. And I'm kind of old school that way. So he touted Mr. Nasser's leadership quote, quote, leadership experience, understanding of the global energy industry and the drivers of of the shift toward a low carbon economy. So, uh, translation out of the business jargon is he said, he said, Mr. Nasser is the right guy for the job because he understands the industry. And, and he's, he's sort of, you know, he's harmonic with the, uh, with the, with the, the vibe of, of reducing carbon. Um, that's the first thing I want to now further down. I want to read the quote from Mr. Nasser. Nasser Nasser. Uh, you say Nasser, I say. Uh, here's, here's what he said. So the guy that Larry Fink, the CEO, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, who just said, this guy's got it going on, and that's why we appointed him to our board. Here's what this guy said. He goes, he said, admitting this reality. Oh, let me give you a little context. Um, uh, he, he was urging global leaders to continue investing in fossil fuels. This was in December of... Uh, this is a couple of years ago. This is a year and a half ago. But anyway, they're, they're, they're hearkening back to his, uh, some events uh, that he was at. And he was urging global leaders to conv- continue investing in fossil fuels, arguing that the world cannot switch to clean energy overnight. And then here's the quote from Mr. Nasser. Admitting this reality that the world can't switch to clean energy overnight. Keep in mind, this is what BlackRock CEO Larry Fink said, this is the guy that he said, we put this guy on our board because he's got it right. Admitting this reality that we can't switch overnight will be far easier than dealing with energy insecurity, rampant inflation, and social unrest as prices become intolerably high and net zero commitments by countries may start to unravel. He told, oh, he told uh, this uh, to an audience at the World Petroleum Congress. So... What Mr. Nasser, who Mr. Fink said has got it going on, just said is we got to live up to the reality that we can't do this overnight. It's going to take time and and we don't and we kind of can't risk energy security. And does this sound familiar, folks? Can you think of anyone else who made this statement recently? Maybe maybe you can think back to my episode last week when uh when John Hess, the CEO of Hess, uh, kind of got trotted out by one of our local Houston journalists as being a liar because he said the same thing, almost in the same words, maybe not exactly the same thing, but, um, but the, same, the same spirit, right? Okay, and just so that you don't think I'm making this shit up, uh, let's go back to what did John Hess say? Uh, I think I got it here somewhere, but anyway, uh, it's... Uh, well, maybe I won't make you wait for that, for that, for me to look that up. But uh, John Hess said, um, "Oh, he was he was commenting on the pivot of uh, some big oil companies back to um, a little bit, you know, not not completely back, but putting more emphasis on traditional hydrocarbon production because uh, the, you know, we've learned some lessons recently. And you know, I I, I did a whole bit on this last." 
last week about, um, well, we got to still keep producing this stuff. Um, and, 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 uh, Chris Tomlinson here in, in Houston, uh, who I, I mentioned is a seasoned veteran journalist. And I have said good things about him before, but this one particular article, I feel like, you know, I don't know what, maybe he was, maybe he was having a bad day. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he got food poisoning and he was having trouble moving around, but it just felt like he didn't put a lot of work into this piece because he just threw out a bunch of rhetoric about how the oil field executives are, 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 are pulling the wool over all of our eyes. And the one little piece of evidence he threw out was John Huss saying the same thing that Mr. Nasser just said, who Mr. Fink said has got it right. But when John Huss said it, he was accused of lying four times in two sentences or something like that. Now, um, I don't want to dwell on that. I probably already dwelled on it too long. Dwelt, dwell, dwelled, dwelt. Um, but my point is this got me thinking this, this got me thinking. Um, because after my, uh, after my, uh, after the episode last week where I was a little bit irritated about, about, uh, Mr. Tomlinson's article, and it wasn't just his article, but it's that whole, that just happened to trigger me that day, but it's that whole perspective, uh, that of the evil empire. And, um, and, and so somebody gave me some feedback, uh, after that and they were like, Hey, you know, okay, maybe Chris was a little lazy writing that one piece. Um, and, and maybe he wasn't, I don't know. So no, please nobody go run and tell Chris Thomas that I said it was lazy. I'm just saying it wasn't up to his usual quality of work and it hit sort of a, a, uh, uh, it's kind of a, you know, kind of push my buttons a little bit, but, um, anyway, so somebody, so I got some friendly feedback from somebody who said, you know, but there is kind of a lot of evidence like, like, that, uh, I mean, the, some of the stuff that Chris said and that other people have said, like, you know, there is a lot of evidence maybe that the leaders of the industry, of the oil and gas industry, historically and even up until today, uh, aren't always on the up and up. Um, there is, you know, there is a history of greed. There is, uh, as with, with, as I think you find in any big industry, um, and, and, and small industries alike, I guess, you know, anyway, his point was this friend who was giving me the feedback said, you know, it's not like their hands are totally clean. And in fact, just recently there was this whole congressional hearing and, uh, you can find plenty of headlines about this. Uh, so I don't need to really, I don't need to, to, to go into anything, but, uh, I think one of the, one of my favorite ones was, uh, yeah, yeah, here in the Times, the New York, the New York Times uh, ha- say that uh, oil executives privately contradicted public statements. Um, that's not the one I was thinking of. There, there was a better one. Anyway, uh, the point is, is that it's very easy for you. you can, there was just recently this, uh, this uh, congressional hearing, which, of course, it, and the basic accusation is that, look, you guys knew all along that, uh, that you know, that what that your industry was contributing to and accelerating bad things with respect to the Earth's environment. And, and not only did you not do anything, but... Uh, um, 
uh, yeah, here's here's a here's a PBS headline: funding. They they're accused of funding and waging a decades-long disinformation campaign to mislead the public. So, and this is all, and and, and these guys, all the they had they had the CEOs, they had they had Worth and um, what's his name, Looney from BP, and they had. The shell guy, the new shell guy, and and uh, anyway, they, so these CEOs were all in front of Congress, and and they were all saying, "Look, we acknowledge the science, and we know that the burning of fossil fuels has an impact, but never, ever, ever, ever did we ever intend to mislead the public." Um, and I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I've been around, I've been in enough boardrooms to know that. Uh, the conversations that happen inside boardrooms and the conversations that happen or, or any other sort of, you know, senior level club, um, the conversations on the inside and on the outside are not always the same. In fact, <laughs> they're rarely the same. So, you know, maybe I, who's to say what the motives are. Um, um, but here's, here is the point that I want that, that coming back to this thing about, I might be changing my mind. Um, because two things have been going through my head for the last few days. One is that whole notion of, well, you know, I mean, I've been sort of defending, like, I, I, and I, and I'm not going to stop defending the industry in general. But when somebody says, when somebody throws out an accusation that perhaps maybe, and, and I don't mean all, right, and I don't mean all today, but perhaps maybe there have been people in positions of power in this industry historically who were not always, you know, acting in ways that we would consider to be desirable. Um, and uh, don't now everybody don't unsubscribe because I just said something bad about your boss. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying this thought has been in my head like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I've been a little bit of a blind defender. And so let's just say, let's just take as a working assumption, let's say that's true. Um, not pointing at anybody in particular. Um, and the other thing that's been running through my head is, um, is the, the thing that I said at the end, in fact, it was the title of last week's episode, stick to what you're good at or stick with what you're good at or whatever, whatever it was. It's whatever I said at the very end. And then I decided to make that the title. Um, and because, okay, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to put these all together for you so that you can kind of track with where I'm going with this. All right, hold that in, in your head for just a second. Um, and there's this other thing that you've heard me, I, I, be, I sometimes get on this soapbox about, you know, this thing about I, maybe if you want to figure out how to power the world, you should ask the people who did it the first time. You know, in other words, the oil and gas industry can has a lot to bring to bear on the problems of new energy, blah, blah, blah. Um, in fact, we, we harped on that a lot, in, you know, a few episodes back when I was at that event for Energy Capital HTX, and that was sort of like the underlying theme. And then last week I said, stick to what you're good at. And then this week I'm thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe it's, you know, maybe everybody's hands aren't clean. So, or at least, you know, I'm just, oh, I'm not, again, not throwing any accusations, just saying that we live in a world where, you know, there are people, there are, there are drivers and motives and attributes and things that don't always seem right to us. So what does all this mean? Um, uh, 
What if, okay, what if it's true about the shenanigans in the oil and gas industry? What if it's true that even going back to the early days, and you know, you can read the stories about the early oil barons. Some of them are quite interesting. Rockefeller, uh, as, as it said in that little bit that I was reading before, started Standard Oil when he was 31 years old. Uh, calling all you 40-year-old millennials, Rockefeller started Standard Oil when he was 31. Listen, I'm, I didn't do anything. I, I, I didn't do shit when I was 31. Well, I guess I, I mean, I was working. I was making money, but I wasn't doing anything that anybody was going to write, you know, to write home about. Um, so, he's, so it's not a... Um, so you can read the story. And he's also, you know, kind of founded like the, some modern concepts of philanthropy and things. But then there's other people who say, well, he was really a scoundrel. And they say that about all these guys, Getty and Hunt. And um, uh, even even poor Mr. Drake is not above reproach, uh, at least in the minds of some people. So really just right from the beginning, there's always been um, the accusations uh, and the criticisms have always been there. Uh, about whatever it is, the honesty or the integrity or the greed or the or the whatever it is, uh, right, right from right from the beginning, and and uh, Drake and his buddies up through the big, the oil magnates, uh, and and on right on up to the Seven Sisters, um, w- which uh, you know I guess prior to prior to OPEC nineteen sixty whatever they controlled. 85% of the world's oil, something like that. Um, let's see. Do I have that right here? I think I got that because that's kind of an interesting thing. And, and, it, and it gets to the point of I'm going to I'm, I'm bringing this around to ingenuity, folks, oil field ingenuity. In fact, there are typically we always talk about when we talk about ingenuity in this field, we talk about the technical stuff, right? The sciencey stuff and the engineering stuff. Um, but there is such a thing as business ingenuity. And, um, and suffice to say that uh, this particular industry, uh, the leaders of this industry through various historical periods, um, have demonstrated remarkable business ingenuity. If you think about it, if you if you leave out, uh, okay, here we go. Um, oh, the seven sisters are in Wikipedia under big oil, big oil. Um, Let's see. Welcome to the Seven Sisters. Were for those of you who uh, uh, following along at home, uh, it was Anglo uh, Iranian oil company which became VP. There was Shell, <laughs> and I did not know that by the way until I read that that bit on the Al Jazeera controlling the world with oil uh, thing. I did not know that uh, one of the founders of Shell was a painted shell salesman. So uh, it doesn't say whether he painted the shells himself, but he definitely sold them. So uh, there you go. Shell oil. Had no idea. Um, those of you who work at Shell, I don't know. Maybe it's part of your orientation, but I did not know that. Also, Standard Oil of California. That's the one that became Chevron. And then Gulf Oil and Texaco, which all merged into well, Texaco bought Gulf Oil and then Chevron bought both of them. Uh, and then Standard Oil of New Jersey, which was became Esso, which became Exxon, I think, right? And then Standard Oil of New York. Well, I, I lose track of what became what. But anyway, the original Seven Sisters, Anglo-Iranian, Shell, Standard Oil of California. There's three Standard Oils, California, New Jersey, and New York. And then there's Gulf Oil in Texaco. Um, 
uh, what does it say here? By the 1930s, the Seven Sisters dominated oil production in the world. The companies nearly owned nearly all rights to oil in Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, the Persian Gulf. Uh, and they established uh, jointly owned companies. So they, you know, a bunch of JVs, and yeah, they were basically exercising control over the whole thing. And some of that stuff, although it was written in a rather dramatic manner by our friends at Al Jazeera, it's not untrue. Um, they did get together and say, hey, we need to... Now, you could. there's two ways to look at that. You could look at it as stabilizing the market, or you could look at it as a greedy... Uh, you know, uh, uh, play for control. I wasn't in the room with them, folks. So, I, you know, uh, so it's hard to say. But here's the point that I want to make: all of this ingenuity on the on the in terms of the business. Um. Uh, you know, oil executives, leaders have uh have produced and maintained an industry that has made it through. I mean, we always talk about this, right? The cyclical nature of the industry. Well, guess what? Never stopped happening <laughs> during all of those down cycles. It never stopped supplying energy to the world. Sometimes it became very expensive. Sometimes uh, there was a notion of scarcity. Um, I'm not sure that there ever was an actual scarcity, but, uh, um, and sometimes we had problems that were self-inflicted. Um, but, you know, you had market crashes, you've had geopolitical turbulence, you've had all sorts of economic situations going on. And, and through it all, through it all, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the, uh, the, the fossil fuel industry has continued to produce fuel that the world needs. And you don't do that by being dumb at business. <laughs> you just don't do that. Like... Had they not had these had all these people from the very beginning, and you know, there, and there's lots of stories we could tell here, like right from the, from from Edwin Drake, Drake and his friends, that all the way through, all the all the you know, all the way right up until now, um, right up until now, when our the leaders of, of these companies are being called before Congress and they're being har harassed over here and harangued over there, and 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 maybe they deserve it, maybe they deserve it. Uh, but my question is, well, this too, before I get to the question, through all of that, even now, the industry still keeps producing, still keeps producing. And I know sometimes the price of gas at the pump seems a little expensive, but we all manage to keep buying it and keep putting it in our cars and we keep manage, manage to keep turning our lights on and all that. Um, so my question is, if there is anything um, undesirable going on behind the scenes or if there ever has been or if there always has been the question is does it matter does it matter I, just think about i think think about that for a second because and here's what i started thinking about is um well let me give you a give you a little uh how am i on time oh yeah all right i i gotta i gotta get close because i what i've learned about you folks is you're good for about the first 25, 30 minutes, and then you start tuning out. So uh, so just stick with me a couple more minutes, because there is this concept. So I started thinking about this philosophically, um, which I get to do, uh, where I, which I do from time to time, and I rarely get to bring that perspective into this show, because most of the time we're talking about oil field ingenuity and who gives a rat's ass about philosophy. But in this case, in this case, there is this... Um, 
there is this, uh, I don't, what do you call it, a branch of philosophy or a, um, a form uh, uh, called consequentialism. Consequentialism. Um, uh, and here we are. Uh, I'm going to give you the definition of consequentialism from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Not that I'm a big Stanford fan, but this was the first one that came up. Um, uh, let's see. Consequentialism, as its name suggests, I mean, we should. Just, I mean, if we were all educated Stanford graduates, we would just be able to read the word and know what it means. But for the rest of us, as its name suggests, is simply the view that normative properties depend only on consequences. I know there's a little bit of philosophical jargon in there, um, uh, but but in other words, it, so this is a question of moral. Uh, morality and, and ethics and goodness and that basically that depends whether something is good or not depends on the outcomes on the consequences um, sometimes you know this is sometimes referred to as the ends justify the means although if you're a philosophy student you know that it's much more complex than that uh, let's see this historically important and still popular theory so this isn't something that they just thought of a thousand years ago and nobody thinks anymore still popular theory embodies the basic intuition that what is best or right is whatever makes the world best in the future because we cannot change the past. The old crying over spilt milk routine. And uh, then there's a bunch of bunch of other stuff here. If you're interested, you can look it up, Stanford Encyclopedia. But I want to share one other. Uh, this is over in Wikipedia. Uh, one little uh, a little blurb here that I think will put it in perspective, uh, which is that consequentialists, that would be somebody who advocates for consequentialism. Consequentialists, not like a religion, it's just consequentialists hold in general that an act is right if and only if, it does say that, uh, that wasn't just me uh, um, uh, embellishing. Consequentialists hold that in general, in general, <laughs> That an act is right if and only if the act will produce, will probably produce, or is intended to produce a greater balance of good over evil than any available alternative. So, something is good. Now, this is in contrast to some other philosophical views on morality, which names are escaping me right now, but where, where they focus more on the intention of an act as determining whether it's good or not good, uh, good or evil, uh, the, the intention, the motives, the kind of what was in your head when you did it. Whereas consequentialists say really all that matters is what's, what does it produce? In, um, and, and if it produces a, and, and very few things produce only good or only evil. And so the, their point is, if it produces a greater balance of good over evil than any other available alternative. So in other words, if you did something and if you did something and it, it seemed a little bit um, scammy, but it produced, you know, 70% good and only 30% bad and something else you could have done instead would have produced 60% good and 40% bad, then the first one is better. <laughs> so, so are you with me on this? Okay. Now, and this comes back to my point. Uh, if you're a consequentialist, which there are many and it's popular, it's a popular view. Um, then, uh, then it's fair to say that, uh, the ingenuity, the smarts, the, so this, the smartness of 
of oil executives today and even uh, of industry leaders going all the way back in history that their ability to uh, to build and and continue to operate an industry that has provided power um, and energy to the world, broadly speaking, I know there's some people in some dark places where they don't have access to the things they need, but but generally speaking, this has this industry has powered the world for over a century, um, and not just power. It wasn't like something else was doing it, and this took over. Like when this happened, and we've said this before, when this happened, everything changed. Life changed, right? And um, for the good. And um, so you could say that um, the fact that they've done this, well, what would have been the alternative? What if, what if, um, what if the, the people that have, that have been at the top of this industry since the beginning, in spite of the fact that maybe they're conniving and unscrupulous and, and, and whatever else you want to, whatever other, you know, uh, stuff you want to lay at their feet. Um, what if they had failed? What if they couldn't keep it going? What if they couldn't keep it up? As they say, what if, uh, what if the, the market volatility, the geopolitical, you know, wars, what if they just, what if they just failed? And, um, uh, or what if they were just such good guys and, uh, and, and, and so, so committed to moral and ethical behavior as, as maybe perhaps many people see it, that they had, uh, as a, and I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that, that, um, that, uh, you know, in order to be successful, you have to be unscrupulous. I'm just saying that what if they hadn't had the qualities that they had, and instead they had some other qualities, which, and, and they failed. Um, what that would mean is we would perhaps not have the, um, the, uh, have not have had the uninterrupted constant supply of affordable, abundant energy that we have had, uh, that has made us, that has had such a tremendous impact on our society and our civilization. You could say, well, maybe somebody else would have jumped in with something, but I'm going to, I'm not, the odds are not good on that because that's what people are trying to do now. And it's not working. I mean, it's working, but it's not, it's taking a while, right? Um, please don't call me a four way liar for saying that it's taken a while. Um, so where am I going with this? Uh, so it's possible that, uh, so do we really need to get mad? Do we really need to haul these guys out in front of Congress and do we need to dig in and do we need to beat them up and say, you should be doing more. First of all, you should stop trying to mislead the guy, the, the, the public. Secondly, you need to uh, stop spending all this money on fossil fuel production and you need to carry the torch for new clean energy and you need to divert your R and D funds and that, 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 And instead, um, because, um, and, oh, and here's the other part. So maybe this industry has, has, has been the thing that produced the stuff that burn, you know, burning fossil fuels has been bad for the environment, right? I mean, that's the, that's the prevailing notion. Um, but what would be worse for the, <laughs> is it, are we in a better position now? Uh, or I mean, are we in a worse position now because of that? Or would it have been worse had we not had the energy that we've had for the last hundred years? 
you know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not necessarily arguing for one side. I'm just saying these are things that are worth thinking about. So in that, that, that consequentialist view of the greater balance of good and evil. So, so, okay. So we, you know, we screwed up the environment perhaps maybe, uh, but would it be worse for us right now as a, as a civilization, as a society, would it be worse for us had we not had the energy that we've had over the last hundred years? I don't know, but I don't hear anybody asking these questions before, uh, before they march these guys up to the guillotine, guillotine, sorry, I almost said it the, uh, the English way. So, um, and, uh, and so what if maybe we just need to quit obsessing over, uh, whatever it is that the, the, the evil empire is doing and however ways, whichever ways that the oil executives are misleading us about what they're doing, maybe we just need to not worry about that. And maybe we just need to recognize that, say, you know, thank God, however they did it doesn't matter. These guys have kept the lights on all this time through thick and thin, up and down, and a lot of world mess. And somehow they managed to do it. And maybe, um, and so in contrast to my usual or my most recent mantra about if you want to power the world, um, why don't you uh, go ask the people that did it the first time? It's true they did it the first time, but, but you know, I might be changing my mind. And I might be thinking, you know, maybe forget that. What the hell with that idea? Um, maybe instead... Uh, and with the with the stick to what you're good at still echoing in my ears from last week, um, maybe instead what we should do is just let the oil companies do their thing, let them do what they're good at, because that is what is and has been producing the greater balance of good over evil relative to any other alternatives. So maybe we should just let them do their thing and let other people work the new energy problem. And that way, if the new energy fails or delays, uh, then we still have the tried and true and we still have the lights on, even if everybody's not always exactly telling the truth and even if a handful of allegedly greedy people keep getting richer because... Until the new energy can power the world, the only alternative to letting the oil and gas guys do it is to not have it. And uh, if I'm looking at my through my consequentialist glasses, then I think the greater good is having the energy. So I might I'm not definitely changing my mind, but I might be changing my mind about pulling over the uh, the smarts and the hard problem solving and the ingenuity of the oil and gas industry and saying, let's apply that to these other problems. Maybe, maybe no. Maybe uh, we just let them keep doing what they're doing. That's what they're good at. That is what we need. And without it, future planetary considerations notwithstanding, without the energy that we have now, Life gets really bad really fast for a lot of people. And so maybe we also get out of their business and stop harassing them and stop trying to win some sort of a moral battle and just recognize that uh, however it is they do it, whatever it is they do, they're keeping the lights on.